welcome to the fourth episode of the official As Began podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Nicely. Welcome back. I'm happy to be here, and if you're here, then clearly you're happy to be here too. Today's guest, today's interviewee, is Dr. Andreas Jinke, who is the leader of a of an intensive care unit, a neonatal intensive care unit, in Kassel, in Germany. His particular interest is necrotizing enterocolitis. Necrotizing enterocolitis, well, when he provided us, the team here, with information that would let us conduct the interview, he sent a real sheaf of articles, scientific work on necrotizing enterocolitis in which he'd taken part. And as I read through them, I said to myself, this is a jungle. This is so many things going on at once. How do you make your way through so many possible influences that can make a kid's gut go so very, very wrong? For just that reason, because it is a tough subject, I'm glad to have Dr. Yenke here because he's the man with the machete and the compass and the guidebook of edible herbs, and he's going to get us through this jungle. Andreas, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks for, for the um, kind introduction. I almost feel like Indiana Jones going through the jungle. Hopefully you will be happy with my guidance. Well, I graduated about 20 years ago and from the very first beginning when I started to um, study medicine, it was clear to me that I would like to become a pediatrician. Um, in fact, my father didn't want that. He wanted, to, wanted me to become a pilot because he wanted me to make money. But obviously, I took a different, um, different course, a different way. And my, my interest um, in necrotizing enterocolitis was um, very early on ignited or initiated when I was um, a senior fellow on the um, neonatal intensive care unit. It was also one of my, my most devastating um, experiences as a doctor. It was um, this um, little baby. Her name, I still see her just in front of me, was uh, Josephine. She was a 26-weeker. And um, she was almost five weeks old and everything went fine. She was without oxygen, breathing normally. And in the morning I talked to the parents about making a short um, TV session for the local um, broadcasting company. And um, in the afternoon, she suddenly deteriorated out of nothing and her belly became bloated and distended. And five hours later, she went to surgery and um, the whole intestine, the whole gut was necrotic and had to be removed. And um, two or three weeks later, she died in palliative care. 
At that time, I, I thought, I got the feeling I, I have to do something against necrotizing enterocolitis. I, I didn't want to, to feel as helpless ever again. So I tried to understand this disease. And to be honest, I still try. So, well, that's quite a story. In effect, to stay with my metaphor, you were parachuted into the jungle. And since then, you've been trying to hack your way out. Nice picture. Yeah, you can say so. Well, I'm, um, I was about to say a little bit older than you, but watching you on the Zoom screen, no, I'm quite a bit older than you. And my medical training started in the mid-70s, and I began my work as a pathologist in the early 80s. And we saw a lot more specimens of resected bowel from kids with necrotizing enterocolitis at the hospital where I trained in New York and then again in Providence, Rhode Island, than we're seeing today now in Graz. Sometime, between the, sometime in the last 40 years, things got a lot better with respect to necrotizing enterocolitis, or at least with respect to necrotizing enterocolitis that required surgical therapy for its management. What did we learn? How did we get from there to here? So we learned a lot about the pathophysiology of the disease. We now understand much better the interplay between the intestinal immune system, the microbiota, and the nutrition. And, surprisingly, we also learned that nature is always the best. So we put the premature infants on breast milk. And this most likely was the most wise decision the neonatologists um, have done over the last 30 years. Wait a minute, wait a minute. So um, I want to go back to that. You, you've learned not to do. What are the particular... You've learned a lot about the immune system and about how it interacts. And you've learned a lot about nutrition. Nutrition now for the premature infant, the immature infant, involves breast milk, whether it's the mother's or probably from milk banks that you've set up at your institutions. But what are we doing different in other respects? Well, in fact, not much, to be honest. So the development in neonatology was... Um, substantially driven by airway management and oxygen supplementation and so on and BPD prevention. And necrotizing enterocolitis therapy has not changed over the last 50 years. So we, if, if necrotizing enterocolitis has started, we still cannot do more than our colleagues 50 years ago we start them on antibiotics we put the baby's npo and in some cases we take the babies to the theater so the only way we have at the moment is to prevent these cases and there have been two main 
advances over the last 20 or 30 years. First, it's breast milk, and we really try to get donor milk as often as possible for the very tiny babies. And secondly, uh, we also try or we treat um, the premature infants with um, oral probiotics if they cannot receive breast milk. Oral probiotics and breast milk. Yes. It's really a matter of manipulating the enterobiome then, isn't it? In order somehow not to challenge the gut wall. Um, of course, what you've said is what my grandmother used to say, Alex, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And with these alterations in diet, with these manipulations in diet, you're providing that prevention. How does that work at the mucosal level? Very difficult question. So currently the most common belief is that necrotizing enterocolitis is um, some kind of an overreaction of the immature immune system to an unbalanced uh, microflora. So what we see is first in these premature infants who eventually develop necrotizing enterocolitis, there is a loss of diversity in the gut flora. So some strains become more prominent than others. And the theory is that this specifically induces an overreaction of the innate immune system. One important factor is LPS, lipopolysaccharide, from gram-negative bacteria. And if there's no balance, no anti-inflammatory balance, which is also provided by breast milk, then this immune reaction is not stopped and or not controlled and destroys the gut mucosa. With destruction of the gut mucosa, of course, comes transmigration of bacteria, comes sepsis, comes circulatory collapse. And I suppose that's what happened to Josephine. Yeah, that's right. And what I've learned um, over the last 15 years as neonatologist is that you need to act really fast if the disease is fast evolving. So... In our unit, if there is a case of necrotizing enterocolitis, and we have about one to two every year, and it's a very fast evolving um, disease pattern, we take them to the theater right away, even though there is no sign of, um, of bowel perforation or um, circulatory collapse. And from my point of view, this really makes a difference, being fast. Um, Andreas, that's a lovely number, one or two. But I want a denominator. How many kids pass through your unit in a year? Kids as risk, um, 80. 
Not bad, not bad. 2.5%. Yes, at the moment it's good. I'm pretty happy about that. And how I do hope your rates, it tastes like it is. Oh, let's hope. <laughs> but how do your rates compare with those of other institutions, both inside Germany and in the wider area covered by Espigan? I would say we are in the upper 20%. So there are certainly units that are better than our than ours, but I think we are doing quite well. I agree, you're doing quite well. But Espigan is all about experience sharing and learning one from another. That's why we're here. We're here to learn from you. What goes on in the other units, the ones who are a bit ahead of you in the pack, what are they doing differently? First of all, most of these units, they have a more reliable donor breast milk bank. Oh, ho. so um, we that's have that's the bottleneck. That's where it that's where it gets uh, tough. Okay. So we we have no no donor breast milk bank at our hospital. So we are collaborating with the two two other hospitals with the unit in Hanover and um, the unit in Dresden. And in about 90% of the time, we get donor breast milk, but sometimes we don't. And then there are, of course, also other differences like feeding regimens. So um, some units are more careful with um, advancing the feeding, but Everything you do with your your premature infants, if you if you spare one organ in a very extreme way, for example, if you don't give any feeding at all, you don't get necrotizing enterocolitis. But um, you have to put in central lines, and you get central line infection. So it's always the balance. So you need to look at the overall picture. So from from my point of view as an anatologist, everything you get, you need to pay for, and you need to have a good balance, if you understand what I mean. That is such a Protestant way of looking at things. Everything you get, you have to pay for. Absolutely right. But what you say about sparing one system and or robbing Peter to pay Paul, I'm not sure what uh, other languages use for that. What you pick up on the merry-go-round, you lose on the swings, as the circus operators put it. On the other hand, with only 2.5% of your 80 babies a year experiencing necrotizing enterocolitis, uh, that's pretty good for a circus. <laughs> and I'd like to ask you now about the long-term aspects of necrotizing enterocolitis. It's been a really long time since anybody asked me to evaluate a segment of fibrosed stenosed bowel from a baby who got into trouble three, five, seven years down the line. How are you doing with avoiding the long-term complications of a chronic inflammatory process in the gut? So usually if um, the babies have been taken to the theater, the um, stenotic parts or the severely inflamed, inflamed parts um, 
has been cut out, of course. Um, and in these cases, it's very important to be gentle with the antrostomas. Um, we usually try to feed them with breast milk and you need to start stimulating the um, lower parts of the um, of the the parts on the on the lower parts of the stoma so you need to to refill or fill some stool coming from from the entrostoma into the lower parts of the stoma if you understand what i mean yeah you have to give the lower gut something to work with if it's going to learn and to grow yes absolutely and the other cases um the cases with um, conservative management. Those are the ones, yes. Those cases have become even more rare. So I haven't had a case of conservative managed necrotizing enterocolitis for the last five years. I think you've at least given us some clearing in the jungle. I can see light overhead now, which I couldn't before. How are we to take your lessons to a wider group of clinicians? If you were out there preaching, then from your pulpit you'd say, get the breast milk banks set up and use them, use them, use them. How many institutions have breast milk banks? In Germany, we have, I would say, about 10 to 15 breast milk bands, so it's not that much. No, no, it's not. What about in other areas within Europe and within the Espagan catchment basin? Yeah, this is quite different. I believe, or I'm quite sure, that the um, Eastern European countries have more breast banks than the Western European countries. Um, this was also the case in Germany before the unification. So in the eastern part of Germany, there were breast milk banks in every hospital. But after a German reunion, um, they've been closed for some um, reason, for hygiene reasons. Hygienic reasons, yes. of all things. What about in countries not so fortunate as are those in Europe, countries with less to spend on? tiny baby care. Is it still what it used to be when when I was coming along that uh, some babies were just too small to keep? Yeah, that's still still the way it is. So, in fact, in the um, developing countries, necrotizing enterocolitis is no important disease because they have quite more substantial and dramatic problems with the um, term infants. I've been working for three months in Nigeria. I mean, it's quite some time ago. It was in the jungle. It was in Ileifi. It's, it's quite a large town with almost um, two million inhabitants. But we... We had to to fight against tetanus, huh. so this was the main problem on our neonatal ward. And Umbilical these, tetanus. Yeah, these term infants with um, 
convulsions and um, increased um, muscle tone, rigid lying in their beds. And we were not talking about premature infants. If you don't have ventilators, if you can't get surfactant, then necrotizing enterocolitis, which is a disorder of immaturity and iatrogenic support, really, doesn't come into play. I hear you. I hear you. Thank you for this. This has refreshed my recollections of what I thought I knew about necrotizing enterocolitis, and it's brought me forward. What would you like to tell? Well, what have I failed to elicit? What questions should I have asked? What else do you want to say to, you, to the audience? What I've learned over the last 15 years is that you need, you absolutely need to trust your gut feeling and the gut feeling of the mother. So when I am on my ward rounds, I always ask the mother, how's her feeling about the baby? And if she says, I have the feeling that the baby is not doing that well, we stop feeding immediately. Hmm. And I've also learned to trust my own gut feelings. Sometimes I still don't, doesn't, uh, I still don't. But most of the time I've, I've learned to trust them now. So if I see a baby and I have a bad feeling about the gut, I stop the feeding and I treat them with antibiotics, even if there are no inflammatory markers and if there is nothing else wrong. So my main message would be trust your clinical instincts if you have some experience as neonatologist. Trust your instincts. Trust the mother's instincts. Watch the kids like a hawk for even the smallest quiver in how they're doing or how they're not doing well. Keep the breast milk going. Keep the um, bioactive feeds going and get them to theater yesterday if you think there's a problem. Have I summed it up? Absolutely beautiful. Hey, thank you. At this time in the podcast, we generally ask, uh, hmm. your home country would be Germany, wouldn't it, if I've read your CV correctly? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. We ask for a favorite song of yours in your national language. Have you picked one out? Well, actually, I, I have not picked one out in my national language. Oh, but, what's um, this about? I've picked one from... I would say one of the most famous German composers um, who is still living. I don't know whether you've heard about him. It's Hans Zimmer. Um, he's writing um, film music. And I personally like um, his music theme to, to, to the film Inception. Um, the music piece is called Time.
you would like to listen to the song in full length, please check out our SBGAN playlist. Thank you, Dr. Yenke. That taught me a lot. But nothing less is to be expected from somebody who is, after all, the education secretary of SBGAN. Let me give you another chance. What is your summary? What is, as the Germans say, your Wort zum Sonntag? So, first of all, I really hope that you enjoyed these episodes. And if you did so, please sign up to ASPGAN and try to help improve our education in pediatric gastroenterology, hepatology, and nutrition in Europe and maybe worldwide. We would really enjoy to have you on board. So stay tuned to the next episode and I hope to see you in person on the next ASPGAN meeting.